Welcome back to Probably About Politics. This episode, Japan. Yes, we're in Japan. Have we been to Japan? I don't think we have. I don't think so. Um, I think we're really changing from recently we were talking about countries that are extremely non-urbanized with uh, elections that last multiple weeks to reach all of the small islands and different regions in the country with extremely diverse populations and many different languages spoken. And now we're on Japan which is one of the most densely populated and most urbanized countries uh, on the entire globe. Um, An island nation that doesn't border Indonesia somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 125 million people living in Japan, home to to the world's most populous metropolis in Tokyo with nearly 40 million people in one metro region. It is truly an incredible country. Yeah. And they're having uh, not like the biggest election, sort of an off-year election, as you might say, but definitely an election worth covering. Yeah, there's a lot to go over because Japan is a bicameral constitutional monarchy, which may seem similar to some countries, many of our listeners might know, like Canada or the United Kingdom. Um, But the way they do their stuff is totally different. (laughs) Um, given that they have these staggered elections they have the national diet instead of calling it parliament and senate or congress the national diet made up of two different houses with a ton of seats in them but not all those seats get elected all the time Um, but one slight bit of history for japan if that's okay kaylee i think so needed maybe okay so japan you might think of it as a spot with emperors in like these cool wooden palaces, you know. So, wood important in Japan. Did you know? <laughs> Four UNESCO World Heritage Sites protect natural value locations in this densely, incredibly urbanized country. Because yeah. when I think of Japan, I think of these like nice, serene forests with like a little like waterfall and like a little stream all the time. But it's so weird to me that I have that vision in my mind, despite Mm -hmm. also having the vision of like 40 million person Tokyo. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a contrast. (laughs) Yeah, I think Japan to me is like a country full of contrasts because we think, I know what I'm going to talk about here is the like history of the emperor. But I like I think of Japan as such an incredibly modern country, like one of the world's leading developer of microelectronics, super forward thinking a lot of the time, um, extremely technological. But also when I think of Japan, I think of like strong sense of history and tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting to me how this country is able to kind of maintain these dichotomies of this like beautiful serene nature that i picture when i think of japan and at the same time these huge metropolitan regions so they have a monarch right they have the emperor Mm -hmm. but the emperor unlike our queen who our queen actually is really actually in charge and just de facto gives power to the prime minister to do whatever he or she wants and signs the bills um in japan the monarch actually super doesn't have power (laughs) anymore and in the constitution has a defined role really as a ceremonial leader and is the head of all of like the the nation's orders and stuff um, but doesn't actually have any power to overrule or 
not ratify new prime ministers coming in or presidents. Um, so their role is like way more actually limited, which I thought makes a lot of sense, especially given like <laughs> monarchism yeah. in Canada and what we think we should do with the mm-hmm. Senate and the monarchy and everything. And this just makes sense. It's like, keep them good sense for tradition, but move forward, which I think is totally how I think of Japan. It's like, yeah. keep, keep the tradition, but also move forward. Yeah, I think, it, and it's also like, uh, so some things that you're highlight, like this idea that they have that sort of mix of, of like a parliamentary system bicameral that we're used to, and then these off-year elections. And then mm-hmm. also the fact that they have an emperor, but in a really scaled back role comes to how we can understand how Japan's modern democracy was formed out of World War II and mm-hmm. um, the U.S.'s heavy, heavy hand in the development of what is their current uh, uh, constitution charter that guides how their do- democracy operates um, and mm-hmm. tries to and and was specifically an effort to scale back the power of emperors in Japan uh, mm-hmm. and and uh, ensure democracy in the future but also uh, that sort of off-year election cycle that uh, that we both mentioned is what you see in uh, the US they have off-year mm-hmm. elections where half of the body goes out and is elected and while another half uh, remain for a few more years so i think mm-hmm. that that's kind of an interesting it is an interesting chance to really bring in some of the history that it shapes where japan is and then also is shaping kind of a lot of conversations in this current um, election so there is really a current emperor he's a real guy he's i think like the 120 something emperor of japan mm-hmm. um and so i was interested in finding who was the first emperor of japan and wouldn't you know it nobody really knows (laughs) yeah (laughs) so so there's this idea that uh in 660 bc so in fairness a long time ago to keep records Mm -hmm. uh there was this guy emperor jimu um it's largely i think agreed upon that he was mythical and it seems like the first nine emperors of Japan that I recorded were mythical or semi-mythical, maybe didn't actually exist. Um, and the first one who's like pretty sure that he mostly existed in the way that it's interpreted is Emperor Sujin in 148 BC. It's the first like actual person probably, which is still over like 2200 years or like 2200 years ago, um, which is really wild that there's just this like continual line which is like twice as old as the monarchy in england which was amazing to me to find out yeah there's like there is we'll link it in the newsletter but there is a very cool uh or fun youtube video about the whole history of japan um and and it's worth taking a watch it but it condenses it into like i think maybe 10 minutes or something like that it's very impressive (laughs) I totally have forgotten about this video until you just mentioned it. Yeah. Yes, I watched this. This video is big, like, I don't know, like five years ago, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. It, like, came back. <laughs> it was really popular. The history of Japan. Yeah. As opposed to our 10-minute um, to 40-minute history of Japan that we're giving now, you can get it all condensed <laughs> in greater detail and density of information in the history of Japan. And it's a song. So that's nice. <laughs> But okay, so that's the emperor scaled back role given the United States interactions with Japan post-World War II. Um, Current emperor, just a guy, does some ceremonial stuff. What really matters is the national diet. And half of the national diet is half up for election this year, Mm -hmm. (laughs) on this day. (laughs) So we're recording this as polls have opened in Japan but have not yet closed. Um, 
And basically the House of Councillors is up for election right now, and, ha- and it's half of the House of Councillors that's up for election. It is the House of Representatives that is up for election, which is the more powerful of the two houses. Um, the House of Representatives 465 seats elected by party list proportional representation. The House that's currently up for election is the House of Councillors, which has 248 seats this time around, um, and staggered different elections with 125 elected at a time of those 248. And of those ones that are elected, the majority are elected by multi-member single transferable vote. So you have a riding that has one or more members that comes out of it, but you only get one vote. It's kind of a generalized first-past-the-post voting system. Uh, And then there is a smaller number of those 125 that are elected from open list proportional representation. So there's two different types of voting that happens for half of the half of one (laughs) of the two (laughs) houses of parliament uh, or of the national diet. Uh, And of those, there is one party that basically has all of the power, which is the Liberal Democratic Party, led by current Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. Yeah, uh, and and to be clear, like the Liberal Democratic Party is really pretty much the conti- like with small interruptions, pretty much the continuous governing party since uh, mm-hmm. in modern uh, uh, Japanese democracy. Uh, so, so the the election in this instance is this election which um is happening as we're actually recording today um is essentially a question of how much he will win like will he have uh a, a, just a regular ma- majority or will he have a, a super majority um and how easily will he uh will uh the liberal democratic party and Kishida as the the prime minister be able to uh push through uh, a, a considerable amount of policy um, and their ideas before the next bigger election, which I believe is in 2025, maybe it might be before that, but yeah. So in general, the liberal democratic party, I Kaylee, I got to be honest with you here. I feel like none of the names of any parties in any country signify what the heck their stances are. Yes. Because maybe it's just my Canadian viewpoint, but I feel like, you know, the Liberal Party is slightly more liberal. The Conservative Party is slightly more conservative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But here, uh... <laughs> you have this you have this Conservative Party called the Liberal Democratic Party, which I guess just from my Canadian viewpoint, liberals and Democrats seem like left wing parties. But anyway, so you have this Liberal Democratic Party in in Japan. They've really, as you were saying, have been in power for a long time. Um, this election is happening right on the heels of the assassination of ex-Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who was Japan's longest reigning prime minister, uh, with four separate um, wins to his name, uh, prime minister from 2006-2007, and then for eight straight years from 2012 until 2020. So the way that we got here to having Fumio Kishida as the leader is Shinzo Abe stepped down in 2020, um, two years before he was recently assassinated. So he, so if you've heard about his assassination and him no longer being prime minister or having an election right now, they're not really related. <laughs> um, so he was giving, after he stepped down in 2020, he wa- the party uh, leadership was taken over by Yoshihide Suga, um, who then oversaw really a lot of response to the COVID-19 pandemic and also the delayed Tokyo Olympics. Um, received quite a lot of uh 
pushback um, and did not seek re-election after taking control of the party back in 2020. So then Fumio or Fumio Kishida took over as leader and he has really led the party for the last year. And within the first year of his leadership, we're having this election and it seems like he's getting a lot of support. Um, looks like he's going to have a really good um, turnout of votes and increase in seats um, in this election that's happening today. Yeah, so so we'll uh, just to we'll get into I think a little bit of how that turnout the voter turnout I think has certainly changed the perspective mm-hmm. of what will happen has changed in in the aftermath of the assassination of Abe uh, but uh, Abe uh, and I think that it's also it's worth uh, to speak to the point that you're making about uh, earlier about uh, political party names and that's definitely it's it's something that we I think we learn every time we cover the election we have to go figure out mm-hmm. what it says on the Wikipedia page where they stand politically <laughs> and I think it's it's because political party names themselves are pretty political what can you put in your party name that will be acceptable based on the history and context of the country mm-hmm. um, and certainly in Japan in a country where uh, the U.S. was so heavily involved, particularly mm-hmm. and and in post World War II, where there was such a reaction against um, uh, far right fascism. Um, a lot of those conservative movements were really pushed down, um, and so names like Liberal Democratic Party, those sorts of things that emphasize mm-hmm. the contribution to democracy. Those con- uh, the historical context can really help uh, define what uh, party names might be, but it does mean that terms like liberal um can be kind of diluted in in terms of what they actually themselves mean perhaps uh so yeah always worth googling <laughs> one of one of the the opposition parties the or probably the largest opposition party the cdp uh led by kenta izumi is the constitutional democratic party and in a constitutional democracy i'm not sure what party would call themselves unconstitutional (laughs) or non-constitutional and what party would not say that they're democratic um so i mean like this is i i find it very funny that in the united states the republicans are members to the idu which stands for the international democrat union Um, but the republicans (laughs) are part of the idu because the idu is the right-wing international union None of these names mean anything because everybody <laughs> wants you to think whatever they are doing. Anyway, so yeah. Fum- but Fumio Kishida is the leader of the LDP. They are in power right now in both houses, supported in the House of Councillors currently as a coalition with the Kameto um, party led by uh, Yamaguchi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so we could we could kind of dig in, sort of digging into, because we know... I think we've laid it out here. Kishida is going to win. It's more of a question about how much he will win versus mm-hmm. it, it, it's unlikely that he will really lose seats. Um, more likely he will, he will in fact gain a considerable number of seats. Um, so the, the question is, is sort of, we'll start, maybe, maybe we should start with like sort of a, a, a pre assassination of uh, Abe because there were some really important issues on the docket that the liberal democratic mm-hmm. party wanted to push forward and there was some question like at the time a soft sort of a uh, majority was what Kashida was hoping for and and that mm-hmm. would be considered a win um it is now much more likely that he will get a considerable majority uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, uh and and so he'll do quite well but um so there are several big policy issues for Kashida. uh uh, that are increasing in popularity uh, in in Japan, um, which would be sort of expansion of 
defense and military spending uh, in Mm -hmm. Japan. There's growing support for that where there has historically maybe been um, hesitation uh, given the context uh, between China and North Korea. Uh, and then uh, as well as the expansion of uh, the nuclear reactors for as a source of energy in Japan is another big hot button issue that has taken a lot of time for Japan to Japanese uh, citizens to come on board with. And then I think the the third thing and the thing that uh, the Liberal Democratic Party are getting hit on and what the Constitutional Democratic Party was trying to emphasize is the in, the rising inflation um, and and the the current there's a ten percent sales tax that supports uh, the the country's social security system um, and really is is hitting uh, Japanese citizens particularly hard uh, as mm-hmm. energy and food prices are soaring in the country. Yeah, so I think we can take those one by one. Maybe talk about these three issues um, to start with the. Um, increase in defense capabilities and defense spending of japan um there is so to contextualize this this is not really the same as when say in canada the government is arguing about whether or not they're going to buy f-35s or not and what type of new next generation warplane we're going to buy so in japan there's a specific article in the constitution article 9 that limits the ability of japan to maintain offensive military forces Mm -hmm. so it says that japan is not to maintain any armed forces with war potential um and this was this was written by the united states basically right Mm -hmm. um so japan does maintain forces with war potential though um but they're called the Japan Self-Defense Forces, and there are no strictly offensive weapons that are maintained by the military. So examples are there's no nuclear weapons, which most countries don't have nuclear weapons, but also no um, ballistic missiles. But I don't know how you define a a weapon as strictly offensive. It seems like most (laughs) weapons are quite offensive in nature. (laughs) Um, But so... The push to increase military spending and the um, military capabilities of the country has really been part of recently assassinated ex-Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's um, existence in Japan. So since since his time in office, he really wanted to push for this. Um, and back in 2014, there was this reinterpretation by the Prime Minister of what Article 9 meant. Um, and which allowed for this increase in defense spending rather than reopening the constitution and removing the article, Mm -hmm. just a a potentially non-constitutional or unconstitutional reinterpretation of what that pretty simply worded article means. And that's kind of paving the way for this increase in defense, but also seen potentially as this, as this vote of confidence and actually reopening the constitution in in the future at some point. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's, if uh, if to you in order to make uh, changes to the uh, amendments to the constitution, you need a two thirds of each chamber of parliament mm-hmm. um, and a, a majority in a referendum. And so there seems to be a real opportunity. As as you're saying, this was this was something that Abe certainly had wanted in his long uh, prime ministership and was never able to accomplish. Um, his, there's some sort of people who point out that Kishida historically was not nearly as hawkish as uh, Abe, which hawkish, which means 
uh, more militaristic, more defensive, uh, attacking mm-hmm. in approach rather than um, uh, a pacifist. Um, and so there is this opportunity now because the there are a number of conserv- more conservative leaning parties who are increasing in popularity uh the L- uh, the ldp is going to likely do quite well uh the comito party which supports the ldp and coalition governments is going to likely make gains and supports opening the constitution there's also the J- japan innovation party and the democratic party for the people um and together uh yeah as long as they uh, can combine to get 82 seats they should at least which they it looks like they almost certainly can they should be able mm-hmm. to open up uh, the constitution. Um, and, and that's maybe fair. It, as, again, it's, it hasn't been revised in 75 years and it was written by the U S and I think that there's, there's inherently sort of a tension, um, in, in that and, and in wanting to, uh, update a document because maybe unlike some other countries that are maybe making a lot of news headlines lately, uh, constitutions can be revised <laughs> and <laughs> don't require old interpretation. <laughs> yes. Um, and so that that 2014 reinterpretation of the of the article has basically allowed Japan to now say that okay we can't have offensive roles for ourselves but we should be able to defend our allies if they are attacked as well and so it's kind of given this wider breadth of of capacity to the military basically since 2014. Yeah. But anyway it seems like there's potential actually for this to happen if not actually reopening the constitution it seems like there's a very strong vote of confidence in japan for this continuation down the path that they are currently on and just a side note these kind of midterm elections which unlike the united states is just in a constant state of election campaigning and so much of them go up for election every every two years it seems like having this kind of like one-fifth of the elected body go up for election like mid-cycle um rather than in canada having this like okay we're gonna have a minority (laughs) uh election again and it's it's basically just like an easy way for confidence to be like reestablished in the government and see like generally which way the winds are blowing and then move on instead of having like an entire thing it seems kind of like an interesting an interesting way to do it instead of yeah I think the only the only thing to raise with it is just uh, it, you don't want an election to seem less important than other elections, especially in terms of turnout, um, mm-hmm. which is something that I think we both read about in in Japan um, with like they, there tends to be very low vote youth youth vote turnout. So uh, uh, I think that's defined as um, in anyone in their twenties or uh, younger uh, who's voting um, and. That, that's uh, that's a big problem because there there is a uh, the aging the older vote which we see i think we've talked about this in other elections they tend to turn out very consistently no matter the election um and japan even in major elections struggles to get uh younger people out to vote and then mm-hmm. we uh the article we read actually pointed to that year over year um every time the the youth vote turnout uh drops there's a, there's a, there's a one percent drop uh, it, it is actually costing uh, people in that age bracket uh, money. I think it was uh, 78,000 yen, which is about $575, um, mm-hmm. which is just sort of an interesting encapsulation of how, of, of this like 
the real challenge of, of, of getting youth vote out, but then also that there is a cost to it, that uh, increasingly politicians are turning away from servicing them uh, mm-hmm. with, with policy. Yeah, I think we see this a lot. Um, it's <laughs> this actual monetary value on young people not voting is kind of an interesting way of looking at it from like a strictly mm-hmm. economic viewpoint of whether or not this group is being served and how the taxation is impacting different age groups and different earning potentials um, and whether or not certain benefits are afforded to seniors or not. Because um, I think in a lot of places you see that it's like your general ideologies that are held by younger people and older people it's like if you don't vote then your general ideology is not going to be supported by politicians or represented but seeing that not just your ideology of whether or not you know homeless shelters are opened near you or not um is really different than seeing like this is actually going to cost you money because we're going to put policies in for other people and not for you is a really powerful way um, to look at that and if you know if anything motivates folks it is money yeah. <laughs> or free ramen noodles for two weeks right <laughs> yes that's uh yeah there was a, a ramen shop in or a, series, a collection of ramen shops offering free noodles in the article which we will link in the newsletter if you want to sign up for that um but uh, yeah and i think that's that's that makes a lot of sense to me i think we can really see it reflected in um the campaign issues um so maybe less in in nuclear and and war but in the conversations about um inflation and uh the tax breaks within the ldp's uh campaign platform you see more of an emphasis on sort of increases to pensions whereas the opposition party who is not likely to make considerable gains is maybe focusing more on younger people um, and increases in uh, sort of, uh, say, child focusing on childcare um, and addressing um, housing and uh, housing and wage increases that match inflation and and those sorts of things. So so it's just like it, things the issues that matter are in in strict monetary ways are really being reflected in an election that is particularly. Uh, having a conversation about specific uh, financial changes in Japan, I guess. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that I think generally well known is that Japan has a pretty low birth rate and replacement rate Mm -hmm. um, locally and has a one of, I think one of the most rapidly aging populations on the planet. Um, Maybe other than like, I don't know, Vatican city is probably generally older (laughs) (laughs) as far as countries go. But uh, yes, yeah, a very old population generally in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that that's like a that that but that's a the big one of the big issues was definitely uh, and and the issue that the Constitutional Democratic Party was really before the election was really hoping would hit and it was hitting in terms of uh, reflecting uh, poorly in Komito, um time and power uh, as he he did not want to focus on uh on these uh components of of reducing the cost of living um and reducing taxes uh whereas the that party was calling for a temporary cutting of the sales tax and offering uh 10,000 yen which is only 73 dollars a month uh as a subsidy to house renters uh but you could see that there there is like an attempt to appeal uh on um the increase in cost of living in Japan and an an interesting thing that 
kind of ties all three of these together is they almost all uh so the three main issues of the fear of or the desire to be able to have uh, aggressive uh war tactics uh or we- weapons and then the uh the cost of living and rise in nuclear power is is all very connected to the conflict in russia and ukraine um mm-hmm. they are all in response to that pretty much <laughs> mm-hmm. um you say 78 dollars a month is not so much but that's more than like the maximum gst rebate in canada i think that's true yeah no it definitely would be useful especially <laughs> you're offering it every month uh, but I know yeah. that my rent is a good deal higher than $73. So, <laughs> and I imagine in Tokyo, it is a good deal higher than that too. Uh, I have but... <laughs> heard that in Tokyo rent is relatively expensive from what yeah. I've heard. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and the other thing, uh, the, the other thing to maybe transition us into a conversation about energy in Japan mm-hmm. and what do you do about energy in a country that is so resource poor, like the, you mm-hmm. know, they do not have a, t- a ton of them is uh, the constitutional democratic party is also is looking to invest 200 trillion yen um, into renewable energy and energy conservation, uh, which is much more aggressive than the current government's uh, targets uh, approach and, and the targets of the, uh, of the constitutional democratic party would be to, cut greenhouse gas emissions by 55% uh, or more from 2013 levels, uh, whereas the current government is targeting 46% by 20, uh, 2030. Um, but this is kind of uh, an interesting point because it is about diversifying energy sources um, in, in, in Japan. Again, as I said, uh, tend to be fairly resource poor, are currently very dependent on oil and gas uh, from Russia, um, and are sort of hamstrung in terms of participating um, in in the conflict there or, or supporting Ukraine in the conflict by Russia's threats to entirely cut off their supply. Um, this issue really re- came to uh, public awareness, I think, because in June the government actually had to issue warnings uh, to reduce energy consumption because they were running out of uh, r- running out, and it was in incredibly hot june in in uh in japan so it's really raised the question of energy um to the forefront of voters minds but it certainly exists in conversation with uh fukushima the fukushima disaster a decade ago which has uh has really halted there's something like uh, what did they say there's like 10 only 10 of japan's nuclear reactors are operational compared to 54 before 2011 so they've been very slow uh very slow to rebuild those and and Kishida's uh, Liberal Democratic Party's plan to to address that is to boost nuclear power back to about twenty to twenty two percent of Japan's mixed energy by twenty thirty. Okay, yeah. Currently, Japan is one of the largest emitters of carbon dioxide in the world, top mm-hmm. five. Um, a reasonably good environmental performance index of twentieth in the world, but uh, yeah, very limited in options really. Other and in in domestic options for energy production uh in the country it yeah really raises the question of what do you do when you're an island uh because so, you know similar conversations you're, you're we're having when we talked about um a lot of countries who are trying to decide their their future in terms of access to resources and growing um into future needs yeah it really complicates things when you're so when you're so limited in what you can do domestically and 
your um, region, very opposite to something like the United States, where they have such huge amounts of natural resources to support support themselves with so much so much land. Um, so, did you want to mention anything, any concluding remarks about maybe how this uh, election, as as we mentioned, we have these smaller elections that sometimes are seen as potentially less important. Is there any like? long-term effects potentially of this smaller election especially given the recent news after the assassination happened this week and how that might affect things yeah so i i I think we've really we've hinted at it or or said it directly a few times throughout but like with with abe's assassination it is going to change the outcome of this election and the outcome of the election is going to result in very big policy choices um being made now hope you know i guess if it increases voter turnout that's great um but uh i i would say that you know the it we've seen it sort of before where if something happens maybe it's not a political assassination but something happens and there becomes this sort of idea that in order to defend democracy you now have to go out and vote but then taking that a step further and saying you then in the situation of abe you have to go out and vote for his party and his uh his candidates um, because he was assassinated and this was an attack on democracy and sort of how do you use the, how do these tragedies get sort of put into the the democratic process of voting um, and and what does that mean for citizens who were we've gone over what are three really important issues for Japan that will decide the future mm-hmm. of the country if the government is putting them into place and and they're divisive there are there were many people who are really uh terribly affected by the result of fukushima and so if and, and maybe that will be a very well thought out and gradual process it, it sounds like it's not going to be a, a rapid process certainly um mm-hmm. but that would be certainly important to consider there are many people who do not respect uh abe's perspective on japan's war in world war ii and his desire to increase and when he was alive and, and, and serving as prime minister in politics, increase uh, respect and uh, and action of the Japanese uh, armed forces um, and, and many Japanese people who would say that he had uh, uh, really problematic views about Japan's involvement in that conflict. And that'll affect, mm-hmm. affect the outcome of, uh, of, of, of Japan's defensive and military capabilities, which is important to consider. And then as we were saying, like just from a wallet perspective, there are people who are not being well served necessarily um, by the current economic practices in Japan, um, but they may now end up voting much more heavily and give much more power to a specific party on the basis of the assassination. Yeah, it's hard to feel like if something bad happens to somebody by voting against them, you are like aligning yourself with this other thing that you don't believe in. Um which can be difficult for a voter to wrestle with. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that is Japan. The election is happening literally as we speak. It seems as though um, the LDP are definitely going to maintain power. I don't think they could even possibly lose it given the number of seats that are up for election, but it seems like they will be moving towards with their coalition, that two thirds majority in um the House of Councillors and potentially moving forward in the next election, uh, moving towards that as well in the uh, lower house as well, the House of Representatives. Uh, so yeah, that election is happening now. So by the time this is out, uh, you can see the results and see whether or not they ended up getting those 83 seats between them and Kameido, uh in in this election. So Kaylee, 
Uh, let's move on and see what's going on with United Nations Secretary General uh, Antonio Gutierrez. Yeah, um, so this one is Gutierrez adjacent because, you know, we know last <laughs> from the last episode, we know that he is concerned uh, <coughs> about access to food um, and, and, and uh, f- uh, food poverty around the globe. And so in and this one I'm thinking is interesting too because it is also very connected to Japan and what we were just talking about with them. Um, as I think we kind of mentioned in the, in the previous episode, if you if you listen to that, Ukraine is one of the top five global grain exporters. Um, they they have uh, su- supplying more than forty five million tons of grain yearly in the global market. Um, and so, but currently, uh, due to the blockages in the Black Sea ports as a result of the conflict. They still have about 18 million tons of last year's uh, a lot of last year's cereals and oil seeds waiting to be exported as well. Um, they're expecting to harvest about 60 million tons of grain this year, um, uh, and so the question is: is how we they cannot increase the export capacity. That's not going to be a sustainable approach to this. Um, they they can't not enough to address the problem. I guess is what I mean by that. Um, and, but 30% of the capacity for storage still remains filled. Um, so the FAO, I think this is kind of an interesting thing to bring in the ways that the UN and organizations associated with under the umbrella of the UN, uh, the UN, like the, uh, food and agricultural organization or the FAO are, are going to try and increase the storage capacity of Ukraine, um, and the options, and this is a heavily, this is an entirely Japanese funded project. They're offering $17 million um, to support uh, providing uh, grain sleeves, grain loading, unloading machinery for smallholders, um, containers, uh, etc. And they're also trying to, they're going to try and work and increase export capacity. But the main focus is, is on storage. Um, and as we were talking about in uh, Japan's election. This is a really uh, a project that makes sense for them to be funding um, because mm-hmm. they are they are being very strongly hit by the rise in food prices that are resulting from the inability to get grain out of the Ukraine. Um, uh, but yeah, I thought it was kind of an interesting project. You can see the way that uh, countries like Japan, Canada, the U.S. are getting involved in different ways that are not necessarily specifically armaments and stuff like that. Um, but also this sort of technical support that often the UN and its associated uh, organizations are providing in these situations. Right. And it, this is a, a story that seems like it might actually happen and is not a 100 year time scale for the United Nations to be undertaking. No. No. <laughs> yeah. You can pretty quickly take that 10, $17 million and go spend it on some storage. Okay. Good update. Hopefully that, uh, hopefully that works and goes forward. I have some pretty. Uh, I guess you you have the you have the fun um, good news. I guess this week for, for uh, United Nation news, space not news. Role. <laughs> <laughs> space news. Space news. Let me tell you, Kaylee, is pretty negative this week. Oh. Because researchers have determined when lice first moved from birds to mammals. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh no. <laughs> so I guess we're just thinking about something that you don't normally typically want to think about. But anyway, mm-hmm. 
I won't keep the suspense around. It was 90 million years ago, and it was the ancestor to modern elephants. And okay. so <laughs> basically lice, which we don't really think about, but I think are really a defining feature of mammals. We all have hair. There's lice that live in hair. The lice seem as though they evolve hand in hand with mammals over the last 90 million years they've jumped from different types of mammals back and forth 15 times there's over 5,000 species of lice um just I'll, I'll link the the article it's pretty interesting just like to read all of the uh different uh history of lice but from what i could gather it was really difficult to actually find out when the first lice came into mammals because uh, they go back and forth like this so many times and because they they mm. change mammals and hosts so much and they themselves change so much and they also have a symbiotic relationship with bacteria inside of the lice body um, that extracting actual dna just of the lice over time is really really complicated <laughs> but given these advancements in in dna uh, technology uh, this group of researchers was able to find lice moved into the afrotheria mammal clade 90 million years ago um but the actual cool fun fact about this is that lice are the (laughs) okay it's hard to say that this is a fun fact but lice are the only true um insect that live in water they live underwater on seals because seals used to be mammals on land and then when seals went back into the water because lice are so intertwined with what mammals are these days Mm -hmm. uh the lice that were on the seals evolved to also be little water going little creatures so they could keep sucking that blood of that seal yeah what tenacity (laughs) (laughs) anyway uh that's the tree of lice uh is what yeah. this article calls it <laughs> what a what a heartwarming really i i think that your perspective is a heartwarming story of a uh, of a persistent and ongoing relationship that is you know definitely a has really beautiful downs. thing yeah <laughs> <laughs> anyway that was uh this episode of probably about politics on the um minor japanese election happening uh, for the House of Counselors there happening today on July 10th. Uh, also a little bit of good short-term news from the United Nations and a brief history of lice on Earth. Uh, if you have anything to say back at us, send us a tweet at ProbPolitics or follow us on Instagram at the same handle or send us an email at ProbPolitics at gmail.com. Uh, we love you all. Love you. Thanks for listening.